Welcome to the Live Your Purpose podcast. This show is created to help overwhelmed moms rediscover peace and purpose in their everyday lives. Hey, you guys, welcome back to the show. This episode is fantastic because I talk with my dear friend, Frank Granary, who is just an incredible man of talent and courage. Just wait until you hear his story. He makes me a believer that people come into our lives for a reason. And I truly believe that Frank and I are aligned together to further our missions on mental health. And I'm just so excited that you're about to get to know him better. Frank and I actually met through my husband. They were both traveling on the same flight for work and they just started making small talk and they became instant friends and they exchanged phone numbers and they just decided to stay in touch and get together next time they were both in the same area of the country again. So a few months later, Frank was working near where we lived in Texas, and so my little family met Frank for breakfast one day. And I hardly knew anything about him going into this breakfast, except that he worked full-time for ESPN, and I have a background in sports production, so I knew right off the bat he and I would have something to talk about. But leaving breakfast that day, I could not get over just how genuinely friendly and kind he was. He tells the most fascinating and captivating stories that make you just feel like you are reliving it as he describes it. You just hang on his every word, just as I know that you will feel during our conversation here in a few minutes. But it wasn't until I recorded my In the Throes of Suicide episode that he reached out to my husband and said that he had written a book on his mother's mental health journey and he wanted to send it to me. So I read his book and I knew immediately I wanted to feature him on the show. So a few months later, we met for drinks the evening before we recorded our episode to discuss what direction we wanted to take because his life, you guys, is so multifaceted. So when it came to our conversation, we wanted to make sure that we were both 100% authentic and transparent because that's just who we are and how we believe we can make the biggest impact in the world. So it was important to me to even make the recording of this conversation authentic and to make you feel like you were in the room with us. We recorded it in a conference room of his hotel so you can hear noises from the staff working in the background which being completely transparent here bothers my professional technical side but the ironic element is that while we were discussing some really tough issues on mental health and sexual abuse we could see and you will hear children playing in the courtyard next to our conference room it was really beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time which life often is so i will say that if your children are close enough to hear this episode It's probably best to pause the show until you have some alone time or can put in your earbuds because there are definitely some heavy parts of this episode that you may not want your children to hear. But I absolutely love the authenticity of our conversation because I've always been so moved by him and his stories and now especially his book that we discuss. I will always cherish this conversation. So much so that I'm breaking it into two episodes, with the first episode focusing more on his book and his mother's mental health journey, 
and the second part focusing more on how everything impacted him and how he has overcome his own mental health issues that came from dealing with a family of such dysfunction. And I promise that some of his stories will resonate with you no matter your walk of life or your background. So I'm pleased to share the first part of my conversation with my friend, who you should now consider your friend too, Frank Granary, talking about his phenomenal book, Pavarotti and Pancakes. So I'm so excited to talk to you about this because you wrote a phenomenal book that really reads much more as a movie. I love how you shared so much. You shared all the good, all the bad, the ups and downs. There are sentimental moments, moments that really touched your heart and I had to put the book down and cry for a few minutes and moments that I laughed and had to go tell my husband, oh my gosh, guess what happened to Frank? And then um, moments where I had to just walk away and I didn't want to accept it as though that had happened to anyone that I knew. So tell me what the inspiration was behind Pavarotti and Pancakes. Sure. Um, okay, we are currently in 2019. In 1999, I had done a semester abroad in college in um, Buenos Aires, Argentina. Mm-hmm. And on the flight to Argentina, I met a young lady that I just became friends with. And a few weeks after I arrived, she happened to say, hey, do you want to go to a concert um, in late April of 99? And I mm-hmm. said, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, whatever. So we go to this concert in April of 99. Mm-hmm. Um, it featured an Argentine opera singer, a flamenco guitar player, and then Luciano Pavarotti, mm-hmm. who, of course, is one of the three tenors. Mm-hmm. My father and uncle had performed in Atlantic City, New Jersey, a party in Pavarotti's honor mm-hmm. in like 1983. And I grew up listening to Frank Sinatra and Pavarotti type music and that genre. That was mm-hmm. my father's favorite genre, so that's what we were sort of forced to listen to growing mm-hmm. up. So as Pavarotti started to sing song after song, I found myself saying, I, I remember that tune. Or I remember dad singing that one or him whistling that melody. But then um, he sang a song called O Sole Mio, which most people are familiar with the melody. Um, Elvis Presley did a cover in English um, called It's Now or Never, which is the same melody. But anyway, the song starts and I remember just like now, I leaned forward in my seat. Something mm-hmm. was like attracting me to what mm-hmm. was going on on the stage. He started to sing and I looked up at the moon. It was an outdoor stadium. And I was like, what is happening? And I looked back down at the stage of the performance and there were 25,000 people there but he was like singing to me. Mm-hmm. Like he was just touching me with his words. Mm -hmm. The concert ended. Um, I was 21. I went back to the um, apartment where I was staying. I got undressed, went to bed, laid in bed about 20 minutes, and I thought, I I can't sleep. I don't know what's going on. I got out of bed, got redressed, 
and took about a two hour walk through the streets of Buenos Aires. Talking to myself out loud in my Spanish at that point, mm -hmm. trying to decipher what, what, what happened. There was something was communicated to me. Now at that point, my mother had already been institutionalized um, for 25 months. She had attempted to uh, set my father on fire in March of 1997. Mm -hmm. So April of 99, she had already done some time in jail, some time in a forensic hospital, and then received her sentence, you would say, in this um, psychiatric hospital. So that was my, sort of my backstory at that point where my family had been through a lot of turmoil. Um, we lost our home, basically. We lost our life, our routine, our normalcy. Mm -hmm. And when Pavarotti sang that, that particular song, it brought me back to the Sunday mornings of my youth when we used to have Pavarotti and Pancakes, which is the title of my book. But it ties into my mother would make these fantastically delicious pancakes. My father would be back and forth between the kitchen and his sort of office where he had the stereo system. And it'd be all... Sinatra and Julio Iglesias and Antonio Carlos Jobim, who is a Brazilian composer, and Pavarotti and three tenors and all that. So I took this two-hour walk and I realized that I was meant to write a book about my life, about my mother, showcasing the adversity, the sexual abuse and, and emotional abuse that she went through and how that manifested in her adulthood and sort of ravaged um, our family. Mm -hmm. But I then spent the next uh, 19 years refining it, reworking it, revising it, um, until I self-published in March of 1990, no, <laughs> of 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like I did a, a very good job of staying true to the essence of my mother's story and trying to, to reach people, touch people like Pavarotti touched me. Mm -hmm and inspire them to look at their own lives and realize maybe what they were meant to do or be. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I think you did an amazing job of doing that from even, I would even say, looking at the the cover of the book, it's just, it's a beautiful cover, has an amazing family portrait, But the curious aspect is that your mother had been cut out. It had very intentionally had been cut out. And mm -hmm. so it's intriguing. You know, they always say don't judge a book by its cover. Mm -hmm. But if that doesn't, if the, if the cover of the book doesn't sum up the book, I don't know what would. Mm -hmm. And then when you start reading it, mm -hmm. you're immediately drawn in by your words that your mother tried to kill your family, specifically yeah. your father. Yeah. And so it's amazing oh, thinking about how the cover of the book had this beautiful family, but then what would happen for the mom to have been cut out? Sure. And then all of a sudden the mom tries to kill your dad and then you have to try to save your dad. So talk a little bit about what happened in your mom's life sure. that led her to that point. Sure. Because a lot of the times the moms are supposed to be the ones who are holding their family together. Sure. And yet the mom is being cut out of the family picture. Sure. It's just... So um, sadly, she, as a, as a 
young lady. Um, so her parents were off the boat from Italy. Mm-hmm. And they were uh, uneducated uh, early 20th century immigrants. Um, she was the youngest of six children that they had. Two uh, boy children had died young. And the fact that she was a girl was not what her father had hoped for. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to when she's about eight years old, her mother goes back to Italy to visit her family for some period of time, six, eight months, a year, we're not sure, somewhere like in that period of time. Mm-hmm. That's when my mother first started to experience um, sexual abuse. And it turned into not just one man, but two men, eventually three men. All different levels of abuse. Some involved actual sexual penetration, some was of an oral nature, and some was more voyeuristic and in a molestation type, touching and feeling in appropriate places, mm-hmm. basically. Um, as you can imagine, this would affect anyone. But when it's that many men over a prolonged period of time, and my mother claimed that she did attempt to tell her mother when the mother returned from Italy, but that her mother was either overwhelmed by the news, didn't believe the news, um, or was afraid of what the repercussions would have been. Mm-hmm. Basically told my mother, I don't want to hear it again. Mm-hmm. And you're not to, not to tell your father. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this little girl, all that festers in her. Um, How old was she at the time? Eight is when it started. Okay. Twelve is when it mm-hmm. stopped, it went, stopped with the one man. Another man didn't leave her alone, she claimed, until she got married. In terms of always pestering her to mm-hmm. do something. Mm-hmm. And then the other was a, a family member that used to like to watch her get dressed and undressed. And mm-hmm. when she was asleep, he would attempt to fill her up, basically, mm-hmm. until she put a stop to it. So again, no one came to her defense. She had to defend herself. Mm-hmm. On top of that, her father was um, an alcoholic. And of course, that's a very complicated topic. I mean, alcoholism just affects families very deeply. Mm-hmm. So she wanted desperately to love her father and to be loved by him, but the fact she was a girl, the fact that he was really old-minded in that sense, um, didn't make a healthy relationship a, a plausible thing for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time that she met my father, when she was 21 years old, she had had quite a complicated youth and adolescence. Mm -hmm. And the thing that maybe made it a little worse was back then, families were very concerned about how they appeared, Mm -hmm. how they looked. The idea of shame was not something easily swallowed Mm -hmm. or presented. So all this happened to my mother, but but also at the same time, it was as if it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. The idea was to act like everything was fine. So my parents dated for five or six years. My father felt there was something slightly off in my mother's makeup, but not enough to stop him from marrying her. He proposed, they married in 1975. And on their honeymoon, they had a, they had a issue sexually. 
where when they consummated their marriage, they both had waited till they got married to be together. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother expressed a discomfort, not just a physical discomfort, but an emotional discomfort, like she couldn't understand why she felt this feeling before. Mm. Well, neither her or my father knew what to make of that. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of their marriage. So it wasn't long, it was only four or five years that after that, that they really started to struggle. Mm-hmm. She started to get into heavy gambling, um, intermittent um, showering, starting to slip into depression a little bit. Mm-hmm. When her father died, when my mother was 39, 40 years old, then things really started to ramp up. She had a hard time with his death. She wouldn't mourn his death because she had a lot of anger towards him. Mm-hmm. He never once said that I love you to her. As a matter of fact, she lost count how many times he said to her, I, I Basically, I wish you would die, or mm-hmm. I hope I can't wait till I die, mm-hmm. so that I don't have to see you anymore. Mm-hmm. That's Gosh. really detrimental to someone's um, self-esteem and self-image. Yes, for sure. Um, then all of that festered in my parents' marriage. My father eventually got uh, involved in an extramarital affair that was devastating for my mother because she didn't want that to take place. But my father felt trapped in the chaos of the private part of their marriage wasn't going well. And then we, we roll into the 1990s where my mother started to have disappearances and suicide attempts and uh, abusing her prescription medication because um, she tried psychotherapy with different psychologists and psychiatrists. And along the way, um, she was prescribed different medications that she didn't take properly. Um, so, after years of disappearances and, like I said, suicide attempts and just dysfunction, that's what led to her attempting to light him on fire one morning in 97, because she was, she had developed several conspiracy theories in her mind as well mm-hmm. about the neighborhood. Well, and the families had too. I mean, yeah, the, the two, she the was two being families, fed other things too. Yeah, both sides of the families took sides. My father's family took his side, mm-hmm. mostly. And my mother's family took her side completely. Mm-hmm. So then there became sort of a family civil war mm-hmm. that exacerbated the problems that mm-hmm. my parents were having. And then in the middle, you have these three boys. Mm-hmm. I'm the oldest of three, three sons. And we're trying to live our life, go to school, play sports, uh, awkwardly date in my case. Um, so it took over my life. So when I saw Pavarotti in concert in 99, I realized that for me to move on, I had to make sense of it all. And I hoped that my story could affect other people, potentially. Mm-hmm. That was one of, the, one of the things that I hoped would happen as well. Mm-hmm. And the book's been out for 10 months, and those that have read it have been affected by it. In a positive way, makes them look yes. at their lives, either appreciate what they have or remember what they remember what they went through as children or mm-hmm. whatever. What I think is complex is everyone's story is, is the whole book is mm-hmm. every single person who reads it will find something that resonates with their life, 
whether you know someone that's been abused or know someone who's been an alcoholic or know someone who um, has been depressed or attempted suicide, things like that. I mean, someone will, everyone will relate to some aspect of the book. But I think one of the things that stood out to me, and I know I told you this last night, but let's talk about how your mom was actually really a strong woman. She had very strong moments um, and truly was a hero because she kept the cycle of abuse from happening to yeah, her, so, her, her nephew, right? It was yes. her cousin. Okay. So when she was a young woman, um, she stepped in to basically um, intercept or stop the abuse that her father was um, unleashing upon her nieces and nephews, primarily one nephew. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a very heroic thing. Mm -hmm. She would either physically intervene to, to, to stop the physical abuse, and eventually, as a young lady, she was only maybe 22 or 23, she bought an apartment or a condo for her oldest sister and her children to get them out of the house where the abuse was taking place. Mm -hmm. Now, something else that I didn't think about until I went to visit her in the, in the psychiatric hospital, maybe in the year 2000 or so, is she told me that she wanted to make sure that my brothers and I were not sexually abused. Mm -hmm. So, and I didn't realize that that was one of her purposes as a parent. Mm -hmm. So my brothers and I, thankfully, no one ever abused us. Um, she was hypervigilant about that. She knew the impact it had on her. Mm -hmm. And so even despite her dysfunction, despite the gambling, and then the not showering, and then, mm -hmm. the, then the full-on depression, disappearances, and conspiracies that all took over her life. She made sure that nobody fooled around with us mm -hmm. in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, so those were the heroic things that she did. And they were, I mean, she saved her nephew's life. He admits that even to this day. Mm. Um, but she really did help my brothers and I. Uh, early on, she was an excellent mother. But when I realized her focus was to keep us safe from, from sexual predators, uh, I went, oh, yeah, I guess that I guess she did do that. Meaning someone who had been through that as a child, of course, that would be high in their list as a parent mm -hmm. of things to avoid. Now, only once in my life, um, this, this isn't in the book for some reason, I don't know why I didn't put this in the book. I was walking home from school. And on my jacket, it said Frankie. Mm -hmm. And this hoopty sort of sports car, we're talking 1985-86. His sports car pulls up next to me on the side of the road. It's a man in his late 20s. He says, oh, your mom told me to pick you up. Hop mm -hmm. in, I'm going to bring you home. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, I don't know this man. I've mm -hmm. never seen him before. My mother would never send this person to come get me. Mm -hmm. But he, he could read my name. He said, Frankie, come on, get in the car. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, I, for a second I hesitated, like, is, well, he knows my name. And then I was like, oh, he must have read my name. Mm. And I got to give my, my parents credit, I guess, for somebody must have instilled in me a sense of, hold on. Yeah. You know, no, I can walk home. It's okay. I know where I'm going. 
and then he sped off angrily. But that could have changed. That could have changed my my life right there. Could you imagine though that in this? I don't mean for this to sound bad. I'm. Could you imagine that have happening to one of your younger brothers though? Because you were such a strong presence for them and such a protector of your whole family. You and your dad both were super protective of your mom, but especially your brothers. That could you imagine if that would have happened to one of them? I'm so thankful because I don't know that and. Of course, I don't know your brothers, but they may have actually bought into that. And then the story would have been completely different. Absolutely. Like, how scary would that have been? Well, as a former uh, school teacher, I would have to assume that some of my students had, had been through something like that. Because Definitely. I taught for 13 years. I was a, what they call in Jersey a specials teacher. Mm-hmm. So I would see the whole school, not just a particular homeroom. So I literally taught thousands of kids over the years. And just statistically speaking, you would assume mm-hmm. that a young girl, a young boy, somebody was going through something like that. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine because I know what it did to my mother. Now, not everybody that goes through that um, carries it with them in such a way that they can't overcome it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my mother just, she couldn't get past it. I think my father's extramarital affair combined with her just terrible sexual past caused sort of an explosion in her Mm -hmm. that she never could recover from. And I'll say, just as an observer, I guess if you can be an observer of a book, um, that it's like your mom seemed to be, she seemed to have a really great motherly presence as you boys were younger and then as you got to be older and especially as she started turning to you to help protect her from her father who she thought was Mm -hmm. hiding in her closet and Mm -hmm. things like that that's when she could start to let go and I think that's Mm. when the trend to me I started to pick up more on the change in her mental state was that as you got older and she knew that you could help protect her she could then revert back to being the little girl. That's interesting. I never thought of that. Yeah, where now she had not only, well, her and my father had already, it had deteriorated. So maybe, maybe yeah, maybe I became the protector. I didn't know. I never, I never thought of that. But see, that was not so much that observation, but the fact that you were such a strong. And I told you this other day, like character, and I don't mean that in a mm-hmm. demeaning way at all, mm-hmm. because again, it's hard for me to even believe sure, that this truly important. happened to mm-hmm. you. To you, but you just read like such a strong person. Um, and I think part of that is that coming from a very authentically Italian family, you you protect your family. And of course, that's where a lot of this function in your mom's side comes in. But that was just, I think, your nature. And especially now knowing you as a person and as an adult, I can still see you as that protector. Well, I, I loved my mother to death. If I could have gone back and traded places with her and had it happen to me, not to her, or if I could have been there to stop it from happening altogether, I would do that in a heartbeat. But of course. that's not the, the, the hand that she was dealt or I was dealt or the reality dealt either one of us. Um, she and I had a special bond. I was the first born. I fell in love with her um, as a little boy because she was just sweet and adorable and, and made sure we were okay. Mm-hmm. That's why it was so heartbreaking when she eventually just fell off the face of the earth 
emotionally. Mm-hmm. Like we all were sort of in shock over it because she was so well adjusted. Even her family, when I say her family, of course, they're my family too, but sure, her side her of the family um, always saw her as being a strong, well adjusted woman. Mm-hmm. And then when she eventually deteriorated, they were beside themselves. Like, how mm-hmm. did this, how could this have happened? It must be her husband's fault. Mm-hmm. It must be potentially, partially her children's fault. There was never any credence into, well, um, how about her childhood? How about the way her father interacted with her? You know, there's the things that take place in the foundational stage of your life. It's very hard to get over. Mm-hmm. That once heard in regards to, to um, I think it was in regards to writing, something like what happens to you during the first 15 years of your life, you'll spend the next 50 years trying to figure out. Mm. I think that Gosh. I think in my case that was definitely true. I had yeah. to write this. I had to dissect it through this book. In my poor mother's case, by fifteen, she would have needed a team of psychologists to help her unpack all that had already happened. Yeah. Um, and she spent the next fifty years of her life. She passed away at seventy, so it. She never got out of that maze that happened for the first quarter of her life. No, she had to just keep suppressing it yes, in order to survive, and yes. then it, she just couldn't do it anymore. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. She couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Okay, so we talked about how you were the protector, um, or you played a, pro- a protector role over your mother and over your younger brothers, but take me back to the moment where you actually had to protect your youngest brother mm-hmm. from your mom, yeah. and you almost intentionally hit her with your car take me back to that moment sure um days prior my father had decided to go to costa rica on vacation he didn't give any of us a heads up including my mother she caught him in the act of packing a suitcase Um, they got into a verbal argument turned into a physical argument where she wound up kicking him punching him spitting in his face insulting him but regardless, he still went. Mm-hmm. So I was either 18 or 19. Tony was 16 or 17. Michael was 14 or 15, somewhere in there. We were now faced with being home alone with our mother for the better part of three weeks. Mm-hmm. By then, she was already a delusional um, person. Mm-hmm. Should not really have probably been in society. Mm-hmm. Should have been in a psych ward somewhere. She'd already been in and out of yes. yeah, in and out, different had, had places. Attempted suicides, and, mm-hmm. yeah. She should have been under the do- under a doctor's care somewhere, mm-hmm. around the clock. Instead, she's living with her teenage boys, with their father fishing and doing whatever else in Costa Rica. A couple of days later, um, possibly because she felt like she lost control of her husband, she couldn't make him stay. Mm-hmm. She decided that my youngest son's going to come home for the weekend, mm-hmm. where normally he would stay out for the weekend at a friend of the family's house. Mm-hmm. That was kind of odd. It wasn't normal for her, but she insisted. So she went over to this friend's house to, to force my brother to come home with her. He didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, that household called me on the side and said, Frankie, 
can you come over and get your brother? We don't want your brother getting in the car with your mother. There's something mm-hmm. really off with her tonight. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get there in time. She and my brother were already on the way home. We intercepted each other at an intersection. My brother jumped out of my mother's car before it had come to a full stop. Mm. He ran through the intersection without looking for traffic and got into my vehicle in full hysterical tears. Sure. I don't know what's happened. All I know is I got a phone call saying that something wasn't right about her, which was not new. Mm-hmm. She pulls up to me. We're in the middle of the intersection now. Granted, it's a small town in southern New Jersey. It wasn't like it was Manhattan. But still, we're in the intersection. Sure. And she's laying on the horn to get me to lower the window and demanding to speak to my brother. And I go right into, well, Mom, let's just go home and talk about it there. We're in the middle of the intersection. Doesn't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, she wants to talk right then and there. Sounds like whatever. I kind of blew her off. She did an illegal you know, U-turn, K-turn thing in the middle of the intersection and followed us home. Now, my mother was a, was a terrible driver mm-hmm. and would make anybody nervous with her tailgating. It was unbelievable, mm. right on the other person's bumper. Tailgates me all the way home. I should say, I'm in a 1986 metallic blue Chevy Camaro. She's in a 1987 Fire Engine Red Liberty Edition Cadillac. Mm. Okay, so we have these two cars mm-hmm. um, speeding down the road and, and down the shore, we call it. We get home. I, something in me knew not to get boxed in mm-hmm. in the driveway. Mm-hmm. So I parked on the curb. My mother pulled into the driveway. I also knew enough to say to my brother, you stay here. Mm-hmm. Because she looked possessed. I had seen her look possessed before. Mm-hmm. So little 14-year-old brother Michael, or whatever he was, 14, 15, you stay here. I will see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Again, protect her. Mm-hmm. I get out of the car. I approach my mother. She is storming mad from her car approaching my car. And right away, I thought, okay, nope. I got back in my car. Mm-hmm. A, I didn't want to fight my mother. I mean, I was 18, right. 19. I could have beat my mother up. Who wants to do that? I didn't no, want to do that. No. Especially knowing her state of mind. It's not like right. she would. It's not it would have been like a fair fight, number angry. one. Right. Like there, she has other issues going on. Yes. Yeah. So I get back in the car, lock the door. She then proceeds to, you know, pound, 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 pound on my window. Open up, open up. I want to talk to Michael. That's my brother, Michael. Mm-hmm. And I said, Mom, you know, yelling at her through the window. We're both right here. <laughs> Relax, calm down, and we'll certainly come out and talk. But what is going on? She didn't want to hear it. More hollering and screaming, pounding on the window. Anything I said to her didn't make any sense, didn't land on her properly. Mm-hmm. If I was like, calm down, we'll get out of the car, she would then ratchet it up even more for some reason. I finally realized this was a dead end. Um, I had to get my brother out of there. We were going to go somewhere else, let her calm down. As soon as I turned the engine over, started the car, she realized I wanted to get away. Mm-hmm. So she then got on the hood of my car. Okay, so now he's, he's hysterically crying now for 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Gosh. I'm getting more and more and more ratcheted up because I I don't know what preceded this, but now I'm in the middle of a firestorm here. I'm yelling her through the windshield, Mom, get off the hood. No, get off the hood. No, get Okay. I mean, I don't know 
this looks so weird now to the neighbors if anybody's watching, what is going on? Eventually she gives me the finger through the windshield as if to say, mm-hmm. you know, you're not gonna tell me what to do. You're both my children. You're gonna do what I say. Mm-hmm. But then that something in me snapped when she did that. So I put the car in drive and, and I went back and forth from drive to reverse to see if I could make her fall off. You know, speed up for five feet, stop sharply, back up for five feet, stop sharply. Eventually worked. She fell off into the gutter. And then I took off. Now, the problem was we lived on a cul-de-sac. So I took off facing the wrong way, not facing the exit. I went down, turned around. Again, he's sobbing still. Gosh. Like, because can't it's only breathe, getting sobbing. worse. Right. Yeah. I am now totally jacked up. My adrenaline soothed. <sighs> And she's been now at, at a heightened state of, of anger, if you want to say from, the, from when she left my house to go to the friend's house now about for an hour and a half. So I, I come around the cul-de-sac. It's nighttime by now. It was already nighttime, but now it's like deep nighttime, 8 30, 9 o'clock. And it was a Camaro with these big racing tires. So this thing could move. Mm-hmm. So I floored it once we once we did the turn at the cul-de-sac, and she had gotten herself out of the gutter, and was literally standing in the middle of the street. All I can des- describe it as a, like a linebacker, with her arms open, um, bent in the knees, bent at the waist, as if she's going to tackle mm-hmm. the Camaro. Mm. Of course, my initial reaction was to take the foot off, take my foot off the gas ever so slightly and say to myself, okay, you know, you can't do what you think you're going to do, which is just plow through and make her make a decision, either jump out of the way or get killed. Mm -hmm. But in the same second that I made that decision, I got the answer, which was my, the, the weight of my foot back on the gas pedal. And... That, that car was very loud. My friends used to call it the ghetto bomber mm-hmm. because it just sounded like it had that, like that, that kind of sound. So I floored it. You know, the engine took over our hearing, I guess you would say. He's sobbing. I have both hands on the wheel and I've, I've made my piece. Mm-hmm. Like you were prepared. I'm learning to, her. This yeah. is it. If she dies, she dies. If, if she gets injured, if she gets injured, if. But ever now it's on her. Mm-hmm. She's caused this whole disruption this night. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Mm-hmm. He's a little kid. Mm-hmm. What could he have done? You know. So I didn't let up. You know, by that point, I probably was going forty or fifty miles an hour by that point. Oh, and I even tried to yank the wheel. I, I yanked it left, so she went to her right. Right. So you went to the then same I yanked direction. it right. She went to her left, so she mirrored me. I thought, okay, this is going to be it. This is she's going to, she's going to get killed, lose a limb or something. Said so I'm going to go to jail, but because I had, I went check. All right, whatever whatever the consequences are, I'm signed up for that. Mm-hmm. So eventually, as we got right on top of her, she she jumped out of the way, jumped to her left, back into the gutter. My brother and I, we both you know turned to the right to watch her roll into the gutter. And then I found some place for us to hide and for me to sort of then turn into a counselor and try to counsel this kid who mm-hmm. is sobbing 
where he can't even breathe. Mm -hmm. um, I attempted to counsel him. He didn't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. Rightfully so. All any teenage boy or girl wants is just for mom and dad to be normal. What is this right. nonsense? You know? Right. And yeah, that was a night that um, I so I won this book contest recently, and they asked for one um, sample or example from the book, and I gave him this example. Okay. I said, "You got to read this from the moment my father left for Costa Rica until the moment." that my counseling session ended with my brother after I was killing my mother pretty much summed up the whole our lives. Mm -hmm. I know, I thought the same thing that I feel like that was such a turning point in the book because that's when I think, well, when your dad came back from Costa Rica, I feel like your dad changed maybe on that trip, but he came home to no longer like you being his oldest son, but really being more his brother because you just saved the life of your brother yeah and almost by almost wife. killing yeah. yeah yeah but doing whatever you had to do yeah and so yeah um well then fast forward a few months when my mother tried to kill my father in march 97 that's when my father and i really became brothers okay we still were father and son of course and he still sure. would be but he needed you yeah. to be something more yes and you were able to do that Yes. And I think you knew that you could do that because you had already been willing That's to do true. whatever to protect That's your brother. Yeah. And the, the ironic part of it, though, is that after the gasoline had been just doused on him and he kept yelling at you, whatever you do, don't hurt her. Yeah. Keep her away from me, but whatever you do, don't hurt her. Yeah. He, I think that's two things. And one you talk about in the book, but the second one was that he obviously knew that she was not in a right state of mind. He didn't want you to hurt her because in his mind, he was still, she was still swing set Annie, like yeah. that poor little girl that just didn't know yeah. what she was doing, you know? But then also that it would play poorly against him and against you and Yeah, I think you, that was you boys. more what he was thinking in the moment. Yes. Um... And it I mean, would play yeah, to her if, side of Imagine if someone, you know, threw eight ounces of gasoline on your face and it was in your eyes and you mm -hmm. swallowed some and it was in your hair. Yeah. His voice changed in that moment because now it was all, his vocal cords were all full of now the gasoline. Mm -hmm. And... And his voice is something that you talk about a lot in his the book. He is known Frankie as the Frankie voice. the Voice. Yeah. Yes. He was a classically trained singer in what's called bel canto, which was a sort of a southern western European style of singing. Um, that was his pride and joy was his voice. Mm -hmm. So for his voice now to have been altered in that moment by the woman he had babies with, mm -hmm. and then his mm -hmm. babies have to save mm -hmm. him from the woman... It's very biblical, mm -hmm. Old Testament kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. In that sense, um, you have the family imploding, and the, and the children saving one parent from the other. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't live it, I don't know if I believe it. It yeah. just was too extreme. And yeah, that morning he was saying in his. It wasn't even raspy. It was almost like a greasy voice not to hurt her because mm -hmm. he was afraid, I think, as you alluded to, 
the perception in the eyes of the law. Mm-hmm. If this 50-year-old woman was mm-hmm. bruised and battered by her three teenage boys, mm-hmm. it could have been spun any which way. Mm-hmm. Oh, he started it and they, the kids finished it. and mm-hmm. the, So he knew enough. He had already been misperceived by then. Right. Even earlier on, the FBI thought he was a mafia member mm-hmm. um, throughout the 80s and mm-hmm. well, through that, throughout the 80s because he looked the part mm-hmm. and he wasn't afraid to look the part and he right. almost embraced looking the part. Yeah. And he hung out with those characters. So what was the FBI left to believe? Like, oh, well, he must be one of those guys. You know? Right. So when it came to his role as a father or a husband more specifically, my mother's family looked at him and went, well, he's got to be. He's got to be an abusive ogre. Look at him. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the perception would have been the same. And especially during that time, too, mm-hmm. in Atlantic City. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yes, there was East, definitely a reputation around... Yes, organized crime that, was a thing. Yeah, yeah. that stereotype, for sure. Yeah, it ran Atlantic City until about 1988, 1989. Yeah. yeah. That's one part of our conversation. So, so amazing. I just loved spending time with him. And I know that you will love this book as much as I do. The book is Pavarotti and Pancakes, written by my dear friend Frank Granary. You can find his book by searching for Pavarotti and Pancakes on Amazon, or there's a link in the show notes. Or to learn more about Frank and just connect with him, you can find him at his website, which is Francesco Granary, F-R-A-N-C-E-S-C-O-G-R-A-N-I-E-R-I.net, francescogranary.net. We have even more in store for you in the next episode when Frank discusses how his dysfunctional background played a role in his mental health with a desire to commit suicide early in life to overcoming his mental obstacles and sharing his goals for the future. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode and you think that either Frank's book or this conversation would be helpful resources for you or someone that you know and love, you can again Go to the show notes, go to kristenlee.tv. You can search for his book on Amazon, but be sure you also share this episode on social media so that it can be easily found by other people who may be struggling with mental health or anything else that this conversation had to do with alcoholism, sexual abuse, anything. So if you think anything of it would resonate with someone that you know, please, please share it on social media. This is huge in terms of helping other people know that they are not alone and just encouraging them to live their purpose. And finally, if you want to catch the next episode, which is Pavarotti and Pancakes Part 2, be sure you subscribe to the show so it downloads right to your phone whenever it's ready. Until next time, just know that you are loved, you are not alone, and only you can live your purpose. 